So, anime. Yeah. Did you think just because you killed me that I was dead? Oh, yeah, I love... <laughs> <laughs> I I like those anime tropes. Sometimes they get a little too much for me, but yeah. I I love them and even though it makes me cringe, I also love the trope of the anime intro and I live for any anime intro parodies of other things. Like I I think there's been an anime intro parody of SpongeBob. That is hilarious. I, I feel like they're turning all sorts of things into anime. And I think it's so cute. Like there's this Instagrammer called Miso Art. And she took Megan the Stallion, this female rapper, and made her look like this um, this character from this anime Um who's like this fire and ice guy. Uh, I forget the name of this. It's it's one of those school children with superpowers fighting mm -hmm. animes. My um, Hero Academia. Yes. It, she's oh, I've the, never seen it. She's, I... um, uh, what is it? I think Todoroki. And then the character is Todoroki Tina. But like, it's, it's really cool. Like the way that it looks like, I don't know. I've kind of, I like what, what the kids these days are doing with anime. I'll have to look that up because that sounds like it's right up my alley. I will send links. Well, shall we? Let's do it. Over 9,000 necromancers. <laughs> I'm Shira. I am a rom-com fan, and I am also, coincidentally, an anime nerd who knew everyone. What about you? I'm Brett, and I am a horror movie fan, and I, I like to say that I'm an, a tourist of the anime genre, but I think I'm kind of more of a like timeshare, you know, summer house visitor of anime. Every once in a while I get those cravings and I just, I gotta fill them. I gotta fill them. Oh yeah, no, me, I'm, I'm totally different. I, I became fully immersed for a period of time. I went to cons. Uh, I think my my uh, line in the sand was doing cosplay. I never got that far, but um, for a while I was I was all in. But also, I'm here to represent all the fans of not just Dragon Ball and all the little like stereotypical boy animes, but Clamp, Sailor Moon. All the pretty, girly, sparkly, pretty boy animes and mangas that were targeted towards girls. Girls like me who love romance. Oh, very nice. Yeah, Dragon Ball Z was my gateway drug into anime. 
and I cannot go back and rewatch it. The one of my favorite jokes is how many Dragon Ball Z characters does it take to screw in a light bulb? Over nine thousand? No. One. But it takes three episodes. <laughs> that is funny. So should we say for just the sake of it, what do we do here at Necromancer oh, on well, this particular, get... this here podcast? Yeah. Anime fans support the genre big time. I remember I worked at a movie theater and they had midnight movies and they weren't, uh, I love midnight movies. I'm a huge midnight movie fan. Uh, and so they weren't really advertising it. And I didn't, I was like trying to push them to do it more and more. And like, you know, a dozen people would show up for a movie, but then they showed Akira for a midnight movie and the place was packed like anime fans come out. So I'm sure we'll have a lot of new fans. And for those new fans, we, uh, every week Shira picks a rom-com movie. I pick a horror movie. We review those movies. We recap those movies. We talk about them. We have fun with them. And then we do a little remixing. We turn the rom-com into a horror and we turn the horror into a rom-com. So it's just like an OVA, um, but our version. <laughs> yeah, I, oh my God, don't get or me started. Is it OAV on. or OVA? I think it's OVA, but. Uh, anime, anime fans, is, chime in. Anime is so not, what's the term? Like new viewer friendly. There's eight different versions Ooh, of the yeah. same anime. There's OVAs, there's series, there's mangas, there's. Uh. So this is one of the reasons why I'm a particular anime stereotype, which is I'm the anime fan that's in the closet where I don't like to talk about it as openly, but then if you go to my house and open a closet, a bunch of freaking girly comics just spill out and you realize that I'm actually a freak about it. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of gatekeeping where the people who are like really into it don't make it friendly for the people who are just starting to see um, what's out there and you can't just throw somebody into the deep end with like a really, I don't know, a really stylized anime that relies on people understanding what animes are like, um, versus something I think like perfect blue, which seems like it could be a Darren Aronofsky film. In fact, it's, you know, like one of his favorite movies. <laughs> Yeah, Black Swan is perfect blue. It's right. Yeah, and yeah. and so I think that there should be a lot less gatekeeping and a lot more respect for people who you know maybe they get into something that to you seems cliche, like oh, of course, perfect blue, Satoshi Kone, lots of crossover appeal, or oh, you've only seen Hanyo Miyazaki movies. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think wherever you want to get into it. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I would definitely say that your, uh, your name, if you've never seen an anime before the, um, the musical sequence at the beginning and then the act break musical sequence would confuse you a lot. And in fact, it confused me a little because I thought, well, this is a movie 
why do they have an opening like a yeah. TV show? <laughs> but oh man, the movie I do agree that that if you weren't familiar with your name, there would definitely be a lot of like culture shock, whiplashy, like, whoa, wait, what's going on here? But your name, I mean, we'll get into it, but what an adorable, heartwarming, just perfect little movie. It just made me feel all of the emotions. But so, so you're an anime tourist. I'm a bona fide anime nerd. I guess before we get into these individual movies, I want to ask you, what do you think the medium of animation of of Japanese animation brings to this these movies that you couldn't have if they were live action? I think there's a lot of, I mean, I've praised Sam Raimi on the podcast and we reviewed Drag Me to Hell. Sam Raimi is so good at tonal shifts and anime just, there's something about it where you can go from super serious to extremely silly in a second flat and these movies don't have the the more anime series kind of tonal shifts where like the entire art style changes uh like i like fooly cooly that is tonal shift anime style genre changing art style changing like to the max um but this movie are these both these movies do kind of it's just, I don't know what it is about anime. I really thought long and hard about it and it drives me nuts because this is a podcast and I should be able to articulate. This question, like what anime question. brings to the table? But it's it's just, I mean, you, like I, I've, for a while I forget that both of these movies are animes, but at the same time, you know, when you see uh, Mima jumping, like fake ghost Mima, jumping on streetlights and and floating around it's like it it feels weird but it also feels completely normal within the the movie so i don't know i'm sure you have a couple more insights to say about it well that's a that's a good one to call to mind i think that what animation does that you can't do with film is capture the surreality of just what it's like to experience life, to dream, and to be able to visualize that in an imaginative way that real material, budget, actors, you know, all of the physical makings of a live action film prevent you from achieving that kind of sort of visual perfection almost. And I'll, I'll point out specific scenes as we get into these movies where I'll say this could only be done in anime or animation because there's just no way that you can possibly render that feeling or that scene in any other medium because it's just the limitations of live action. It's, I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I think Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I know it's based on a. Oh, a they did so good. Theater, they did so good of bridging that divide. That that is that is the live action anime. And then I, one other thing and I a think romance. Of, and yeah, uh, one other thing I think is 
people, I think most people kind of have a, a standard, very small view of what good acting is on the acting spectrum. And there's a lot of stuff like mm, animation renders emotions very beautifully. Yeah, but it's also like animation, a lot of what animation is dealing with is really fantastical things. Like the worlds are, are realistic, but they're also fantastical for both of these movies anyway. If you watch a movie like, or if you watch a series like Castlevania or something, uh, One Punch Man, that's not a real world. That's a complete hyped up fantasy. But I think, you know, when we watch movies like uh, Forbidden World, George, uh, Roger Corman's movie, or if you've ever seen George Romero's The Crazies, there's a doctor scientist guy in it who just, he knows what movie he's in and he's pitch perfect in terms of the, the weirdness of the movie. And so I think a lot of times when you're in a silly horror movie or you're in a silly sci-fi movie, you know, like they're asking you to do some weird, crazy stuff. And some people get it and some people don't. And it's, you know, acting spectrums are, you know, acting is a giant spectrum. And, you know, I think a lot of people, like I said, have a, a pretty narrow view of just, oh, this is good acting, you know. Yeah, I think I think that that's a, that's a good point. And, and animation allows you to kind of break out of those limitations. And uh, I think there's so much that you can do with the human voice once you're freed up to only do that. And then the, you know, the action, the visuals rests on the animation. I think it, it just results in really amazing work a lot of the time. So I kind of want to do perfect blue first. What do you say? Oh, definitely. That, that would have been, if you asked me, I would have said perfect blue. Okay. So I need to know why perfect blue. Uh, well, I've been on an anime kick lately. And uh, if you listen to the podcast, you know, cause I've been recommending Castlevania, Helsing, <laughs> One Punch Man. So if you're, if you're a regular, it's no surprise. So I definitely wanted to do anime and the very first movie that popped up is perfect blue. So I'm sure a lot of hardcore anime fans are very familiar with it. But if, if we can just get anyone, if we can get one person to watch perfect blue based on this podcast, it's worth it. Uh, it can it be is, very triggering, but yeah, <laughs> no. that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, we can get into it, but it's it, it does have some stuff in it. Um, but I like there's some movies that are described as mindfuck movies, but watching Perfect Blue and the Descent into Madness is one of the ultimate mindfucks I've ever seen. So I just I love this movie so much. It is a beautiful mindfuck. It's, I mean, it's definitely on par with the great mindfucks like Black Swan, which you've already mentioned. I would say another great mindfuck movie, uh, Mulholland Drive. Well, yeah, I think that's that, maybe a little too far. 
Well, yeah, okay. no, I mean, well, Lynch, Lynch really goes for the hardcore mind pounding right off the bat. And then he really fucks you up in Inland Empire. He just takes you right into that mind train. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, but, but yeah, no, it, I think you're right. It's one of the greatest mind fuck movies of all time. I I saw it I think when I was too young to watch a movie like that. I thought I was, you were gonna say two, like when I was two years old. No, <laughs> but I I think I saw the first time I saw that movie, I was not mature enough to deal with the content in the movie. Also, I wasn't mature, I wasn't an adult. Like I I don't believe in in censorship, but I do think that there's something to when you see something, when you read something, and what you as a viewer are bringing to the table. Um, but watching it again now, it's such an incredible movie. And I feel like I know the movies I really love that we watch for this podcast because I go back and look at my notes and there's almost nothing there because I stopped taking notes and I just started watching the movie. Yeah, I, I, I just take Well, yeah, no, I just completely just was like, I was, I was in it, you know, and I think that that's something nowadays that is especially hard to capture because I'm very ADD. I get distracted very easily. If you aren't, if I'm not watching a movie in the theater, it is not difficult for me to pull up my laptop and my phone and realize that I'm just bouncing my eyes between three different screens. So for something to actually hold my attention for that period of time, it's it's pretty meaningful. It's, um, yeah, well, whew, what a doozy. Should we get into this synopsis? Uh, I know we've said it a few times on the podcast, but good luck. Oh, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And I, I injected some of that classic sheer humor y'all love. Uh, I have <laughs> So Mima Kirigoe, or I guess it would be Kirigoe Mima if we're going proper um has decided to quit being a pop idol and transition to serious acting roles at her farewell at her farewell concert with her group cham a fight breaks out between rowdy fans and a stalker who's obsessed with mima that night mima receives a phone call with someone breathing on the other line and a fax with the word traitor written on it over and over the next day, on the set of a mystery thriller series called Double Bind, Mima is practicing for her one-line role and talking to her agent, Rumi, when her other, other agent, Tadakoro, opens a fan letter meant for Mima. The letter explodes and injures Tadakoro. Mima asks Rumi if they should report it, but Rumi writes it off as a prank. That night, Rumi sets up the internet and computer for Mima. Mima uses it to go to a fan site called Mima's Room, and she discovers that someone has been impersonating her online. The impersonator writes a daily diary entry that copies events from Mima's actual life. While injecting I love... Go ahead. Oh, I just... While injecting thoughts and feelings that aren't her own. Yeah, I love how at the very beginning when she starts reading the blog, she's like, oh, this is neat. And then she keeps reading and reading, and it's pretty disturbing. To clarify, Mima is 20 years old. She's a oh, wow. fucking baby. So the fact that she is so naive at the beginning of this movie actually makes perfect sense to me. She truly knows nothing 
Um, and when, uh, when her agent goes, do you understand what I'm saying when they have to describe the internet? I know it's a little dated, but Mima's like, no, I don't. And she's so cheery. She really doesn't. Uh, she's, she's just a sweet summer child who's about to go through some experiences. So Tadakoro, uh, negotiates for, with the producers for Mima to have a bigger role on the TV series. And then this fucking writer expands her character by writing a scene where she's raped in a strip club. Rumi is outraged and tries to stop Mima from doing the scene, but Mima goes forward because she wants to be seen as a serious actress. And then on her commute home, Mima sees her pop idol self in a reflection and the other Mima complains about doing the scene. Uh, and to the credit of the voice actor, she does this kind of switch between the real Mima and the fake Mima or the, the pop idol Mima where the pop idol Mima sounds really cutesy and just like, it's so creepy. Uh, and then Mima shoots the rape scene, uh, but and it and it and it's a success for the producers, but she becomes catatonic during the scene. Rumi cries. Mima comes home. She finds that all her fish are dead, and then she sobs on her bed, admitting that she didn't want to do the scene. And then the other Mima appears again and chastises her. Men involved with the making of the TV series start to get murdered, but the murderer remains a mystery. Mima further disconnects from reality, seeing the other Mima appearing places and starts to be unable to tell the difference between her life and the show. Her stalker from the farewell concert also continues to lurk around the production. Mima has a photo shoot where the photographer persuades her to take naked pictures. And then when they're published, the stalker buys up all the magazines so no one can see them. And then back in his apartment, we learn that the stalker who goes by Me Mania online has been communicating with the fake Mima that runs Mima's room. An apparition of the pop idol Mima appears next to him and thanks him for protecting her. Uh, and then later, the photographer is murdered by someone dressed as a pizza boy, and it's revealed to be Mima. Is it real? Is it a dream? Is it a scene from the show? Uh, Mima oh, wakes up. Everything just starts to blend together. And any time a scene starts, it's like, I just watched Inception recently, but in Inception, there's that scene where Cobb is talking to Ariadne, and he's like, do you remember how we got to this cafe? And she's like, yeah, we, oh, no, wait, we're in a dream? And that every scene that starts, you don't really know how you got there. And it's kind of like the transitions are so well done. Ah, but everything mm. is, you just never know. It never lets you catch your footing. Remind me to come back to It's All a Dream because for episodes now, I've talked about how much I hate that device. I don't hate it here. I have reasons. I'll get into them as soon as we find out the thrilling conclusion. So um, Mima wakes up. She's got, she gets a call that the photographer's dead. She goes to her closet and finds a shopping bag filled with a bloody pizza boy uniform. And she starts to believe that she might be the murderer. The filming of the TV series wraps and Mima's character is revealed as the murderer with dissociative identity disorder. And then while walking back to uh, or walking back from the dressing room by herself, she's attacked by the stalker Mimania. He tells her that the real Mima has sent him to kill the imposter. He chases her through the club set, the scene where she got raped. And as he's attempting to rape her, she finds a hammer and knocks him unconscious. 
and then Mima is found by Rumi. But when they return to the set, the stalker is gone. Rumi tells Mima that she'll take her back to Mima's room. Mima falls asleep, and when she wakes up, she realizes that she's actually not in her room at all, but one that is made to look exactly like it. And that's when she calls Tadakoro. He doesn't pick up because he's dead. The stalker is dead. They're laying next to each other. Rumi comes out dressed as Mima in her pop idol dress, uh, Rumi was the murderer all along, and she's the one pretending to be Mima online. Rumi goes full Yolanda on Mima. It's a reference to Selena uh, for anyone who didn't catch that. Uh, she goes full Yolanda, tries to kill Mima. Mima barely escapes, but when it looks like Rumi's going to get hit by a truck, Mima saves her. And then we flash forward to Mima looking at Rumi in a mental health facility. The doctor tells her that sometimes Rumi comes back as Rumi, but she'll never really get better. Mima leaves. The workers run, wonder if it's really her, kind of implying that she did become a famous actress. Mima looks in the rearview mirror and affirms, I'm real. Boom. The end. It had a happy ending. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, just... I mean, it's it's beautiful how the dreams and the the movie and the like everything is related. The fact that the movie or the the TV show is about a murderer with disso dissociative identity disorder, and the fact that there's killings going on in the show and there's killings going on in real life, and there's and the end of the stalker. show is the end of the movie. Oh, it's. I can't even imagine having to map this story out and just, I mean, one of the things I think that anime, this probably would be good for anime is this movie was probably very thoroughly storyboarded. And so they only had to quote unquote shoot what they needed. I don't know if, if animes or, or animation movies do like, extra stuff and then they leave stuff on the cutting room floor like i'm sure there's a scene or two like entire scenes that get chopped but if this was a live action movie they probably would just have a heck of a time in the editing room trying to you know make this cohesive well i think they they do a lot with mima's room and coming back to the room and her waking up in her room and not knowing what day it is. I mean, not even knowing if it's the real room. Because who knows how many times she woke up in Rumi's Mima's room. And maybe she only realized that final time where she truly was. Because she's so fucking out of it, you know? Like, um, I, I, I usually... Oh, just on that note... I think it's kind of related to just because we watch all these movies, you know, and with, you know, weeks apart, we recently watched Carrie and Carrie starts off with characters going, go home. It's safe at home. And then you realize it is not safe at home. So Mima's room is kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, this is her safe space and her safe space is being invaded by this mysterious stalker ghost person. Right. And it, I think that there's, also, um, it, it's really interesting to me that Mima, as a real person, she rides the subway, she 
picks up groceries. She lives in a small, shitty apartment. She's a real person. But this avatar of herself as the pop idol becomes something that is out of her control and exists independently of her for other people. And because she isn't her avatar, it becomes this situation where in order for the real Mima to live, the pop idol has to die. And for the people who are obsessed with her, they would rather sacrifice the real Mima if it meant keeping this image, this pop idol, this avatar pure. Um, just it, because her everything, her whole character development has to do with becoming real, becoming someone who can be literally penetrated, who can be tarnished, who who can be naked and, and known to have a body instead of wearing these cupcake dresses. I love the way that they drew her idol outfits. And then Rumi's final outfit was um, a red number, which kind of, it, 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 it was almost like this perversion of the innocent idol pink matey outfit. Uh, and so it made it that much more interesting. Oh, and I'll also say as far as things that I think can only be done in an anime, when Mima is fighting off Rumi, she's seeing Rumi simultaneously as Rumi and as the avatar, as her pop idol self. And there are these moments where Rumi's face is changing in and out of Mima's face and you're seeing um, not only the way that sort of the specter pop idol moves where she's like an airy dandelion, but then it, it morphs into Rumi, you know, hustling and sweating and, and looking like herself. I feel like th that scene could only be rendered in animation. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. That is it's they do it the perfect amount and in the perfect way where they show the difference between crazy roomy and then ghost specter pop idol roomy and a lot of what they show once they kind of do the main reveal a lot of what they show during the chase scene is you see pop idol roomy in the real world and then you see crazy roomy in reflections and so, right. you know, there's a lot but of it also changes like her face changed, yeah. like when she was trying to kill her with the umbrella. Oh, yeah. And then and then what a surprise that she saves Rumi at the end. It's go ahead. Oh, so you finish your thought first. I was going to say one of the things that you mentioned in the in one of the podcasts is that strong female characters aren't just badass, you know, oh, I've got a cool sword and a cool weapon and I'm tough. Uh, a strong female character is sort of defined by how she takes care of others. And oh, it was uh, 28 days later when um, when the I'm nodding Naomi yeah, Harris. And uh, yeah, I thought that that was just like a real, I've noticed that more and more in movies since you mentioned it, uh, just female characters taking care of other characters and how, you know, that's sort of a, a defining source of their strength. 
I mean, is she taking care of her or is she keeping her as a reminder of who she is and who she isn't? Because the very last thing that she says when she gets into the car is, no, I'm real. Or maybe in Japanese, it's different. But it's like she goes to see Rumi to remind herself that she's the real Mima. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I definitely think that in terms of showing, you know, taking care of others and whatnot, this is sort of, you know, a two out of 10. It's, it's kind of more just a, it's kind of more a cousin of that. It's just a weird, strange act of compassion that is, you know, in the moment you're like, whoa, this is, why would she do that? This is, she just tried to kill her and stuff. But then when you do see the follow-up scene, the sort of little epilogue scene, I think the movie does. It, it does a great job of visually and verbally explaining why it was important for Mima to, to save Rumi. So, you know. Yeah. It's just, man, what a, what a crazy, what a crazy movie. I, I, this is one of those movies that is the exception to my rule about hating. It was all a dream, but in order to express what it's like to have a psychological break like this, to doubt reality, and also that the, the way that the moments where reality became questionable came it wasn't like you were hit with an illusion for the first two acts. And then act three, we find out it was all a lie. Mima was really the crazy girl the whole time. And I feel like they kind of flirt with that when she has a dream where in the TV show, she's saying um, like, she's imagining that, um, she was imagining all this time that she was Mima and, and the, the woman, the actress who's playing the, the psychiatrist character is explaining Mima's life as if it were all an illusion. And she created this character of Mima so she could go off and kill all these people. And you almost doubt for a second, you think like, Oh, was this whole plot about this pop star becoming an actor, just a dream um, no, it was just part of one of the many sort of delusions that that she had. Um, so I feel like they used that card in a way that I felt uh, wasn't, um, how would I describe it? Like doesn't hold the audience in contempt. Like I feel like when you make the it was all a dream, a big old twist in the third act, it's really not respecting your audience and their ability to, to, you know, experience that with the characters. And then Perfect Blue allows you to experience with Mima this breakdown from reality and how scary it is, not just, you know, confusing and titillating as, oh, what's real, what's not? It's actually frightening to doubt reality and not know who you are or what you did. Um, it That's exactly what it's like to, to be mentally ill. 
Yeah, this movie is not a gotcha movie where, Mm -mm. you know, there's a few horror movies where, you know, someone visualizes a killer, but then, ooh, I I was, it was all in my mind the whole time. It's, it's not a gotcha movie. It's a, it's an actual descent into madness. Yes. And uh, the, the, I think the first, like, like the first dream scene that's sort of canon in the movie, the first really, you know, if you were to plot this movie out, uh, the first dream scene is maybe when the photographer gets killed. And that is super bloody. Like, I like how the movie isn't all about the gore. Like there's some animes that, you They know, deploy it where it really counts. Yeah. And so, oh man, it hits really hard. And, uh, it's brutal. But then when she wakes up, you're like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. Because I thought this movie was going in that weird, crazy direction where these people were getting killed. And then she gets the call and discovers the clothes. And you're like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. What if she what? really did kill that guy? Yeah, I mean, you... everybody else was killed by Rumi or Mimania. But what if she just killed that one guy? I think it, I think it's Rumi. Rumi kills him because Rumi probably has access to her apartment, right? So she probably planted. That's my take: is she probably planted mm-hmm. the clothes? Um, but yeah, like you really, the movie could go either way. Yeah, I I mean I think it's it's perfect that they left it debatable whether or not Mima tagged one of her own, or if it was all just Rumi trying to to sabotage her. Yeah, it's it's a great movie to rewatch. Mm-hmm. It it definitely pays off on on the rewatch. Yeah, so I'm very curious to know who you are vibing on in this movie. Ooh, I wasn't even thinking about crushes until you asked me this question. Um, I guess at the end of the day, it's got to be Mima. I'm here for the heroine's journey. I'm here for the character growth. And I like that Mima got a happy ending. Yeah. I I know this is going to sound, sound really weird, but I am a huge, I have a huge crush on Mimania. That, it's... Actually, I'm not at all surprised. I'm not at all surprised. From the very first time you see him, the way that he's drawn is so perfectly, oh, this guy is weird and he is bad news. And also, he's a great red herring in terms of... Oh, yeah, because you think it's all over. Right. When I saw the movie, I thought he was the main villain stalker. It was him doing all of the stuff. Uh, uh, uh. But then <laughs> it's revealed that he's getting emails from the real one. And you start to question, wait, what's going on? And then you realize he's not the one who's doing all of this. But then he is a part of doing all like he's being manipulated. And he he is part of it because he's a puppet. So, oh, like the journey of Mamania and how perfect of a of a red herring villain, not red herring villain character he is. Oh, it's so great. Well, it's also just perfect that the vanguard of Mima's sort of imaginary purity is this really grotesque creature almost. 
Um, and yeah, no, he's just so fucking creepy. When um, he buys all the all the nudie mags or whatever, and yeah, he's like, he's got a stack of them at the cashier. And he's like sweating and like, ah, oh, it's so funny. Yeah. Oh no, I I completely understand why you would crush on old me mania. <laughs> so who's gonna go first? remake you know what fuck it i'll go first i i might as well um i i i wrote this one pretty quickly quicker than i thought i would um but i i again went for the obvious choices when it came to titles this movie is called perfect pink Ooh. all right I so perfect pink you know we're not we're out of the blue zone, no more blues. It's happy time. Uh, so perfect pink. Mima Kirigoe decides to quit being a pop star so she can pursue her dream of being a fashion designer. Many of her fans are disappointed and because of her profile as a pop star, she has no privacy. None of the fashion schools to which she applies will accept her as a student because they do not believe she is serious or talented. At Mima's farewell concert with her group, Cham, a fight breaks out among the fans and Mima's agent, Rumi, rushes to protect Mima. Rumi lands on Mima and their lips touch in the scuffle. A classic anime accidental kiss. Uh, the press misinterpret the actions and sell the story that Mima and Rumi are secretly in a relationship. Rumi apologizes to Mima and she swears that she'll correct the reports, but Mima's other agent, Tadakoro, insists that they continue the fake relationship. Uh, a fashion designer reality show, basically Project Runway, wants to add Mima as a contestant because of her unique story. Mima does feel bad about using Rumi because Rumi's also her best friend, but Rumi insists she wants to help. Um, so they continue the fake relationship. They go on the fake dates, but they have real fun and real feelings. I haven't really thought out vignettes, but that's the basic arc. Uh, and then when filming for the reality show starts, Mima is up against a lot of obstacles. You know, she has to deal with her inexperience as a new designer, a cast that doesn't take her seriously and then producers that want to use her and then Rumi's kind of the only person she can count on so despite all ads she does well in the competition she makes it to the finals and then in the finals they have to design an entire line and debut it at a fashion week and blah 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 uh, and then Mima decides she's going to do something really different she tells Rumi that she wants to use her as her model for the show because it's Mima's dream to create designs that give all women glamour all sizes uh, I wanted to make a story where Rumi loved herself and didn't right. have to subsume her personality in this fiction. Um, so Rumi doesn't want to do it at first because she's a big girl and she doesn't believe that she's anywhere near as glamorous as Mima, who she's at this point, she's feeling it. She's got love feelings. Um, Mima then asks her to trust her. And then we get, you know, classic prepping for the fashion show montage. We get to the night before the show. Mima and Rumi are in Mima's workspace. They're standing in front of that long mirror 
Rumi's modeling a beautiful dress that Mima has tailored for her, and she finally sees herself as beautiful, just like Carrie, um, except this time it really is lesbian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote you a scene that, that makes it not questionable. It, it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I, need, I need it point blank, nail on the head uh, when it comes to that. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Mima says something like, I told you so, and Rumi turns to her, and she admits her feelings, um, but then she interrupts Mima, doesn't want her to talk because she can't take hearing her answer. Rumi is so insecure, and she's so afraid to know. Um, but Mima accepts it and says, hey, we'll talk after the show. So the vibe is positive. Uh, and then day of the show. Rumi is trying to get to the runway location, and just as she enters the back of the building, she bumps into a man in a security guard uniform. It's me, Mania. Uh, and he accuses Rumi of turning Mima gay and making her quit being a pop idol. He says he's going to get her out of the way. So Rumi fights him off while Mima is waiting for her to show up. So you've got that classic... She's got to make it to the fashion show on time, but she's really getting held up. Um, yeah. But Rumi knocks him out. Tadokoro comes to the rescue so he can wait with him, with the police. Rumi makes it to backstage in time. They do the show. And then as Rumi's doing the show, Tadokoro gets Mima up to speed. And Mima's just touched. She's stunned. This woman has done everything for her and asked for nothing in return. Um, and then we get to the, you know, post-show. Maybe Mima wins or maybe Mima gets like the final. She, maybe she's like the runner-up, you know. In a rom-com, winning isn't always about winning the title. Um, but after the show, Rumi finds Mima crying. Mima embraces her. She sobs about how she'll never be able to be everything for Rumi, that Rumi is for her. Rumi asks her what she means, and Mima's like, I love you, isn't it obvious? And then they kiss, and what was once just a fake relationship is now real. Aw, that's sweet. Yeah, it's perfect pink. It's sugary pink fun. Uh, if you like fashion show anime stuff, there's a there's a comic called Paradise Kiss that's all about fashion. Mm, nice. I'm not into fashion. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. I'm, I'm one of those. Um, but I think it's super interesting that some of your horror remixes into rom-coms are like Oh, it's cute. It's romance. It's this. It's that. It's light. It's fluffy. Uh, and then I'm going to take that one really murderous <laughs> intent from this one character and I'm going to throw that into my rom-com. <laughs> you need stakes, damn it. And I <laughs> I don't know. I, I would like to thrill people in all possible ways with stabbings. Yeah. And love and laughter. Um, All the things I that I am. <laughs> I actually had a really hard time with this. I came up with about eight different ideas before no. I could settle on one. Really? And yeah, oh yeah, I had a hard time with this one. Um, 
But then I think the problem was, was I was thinking live action and I wasn't thinking anime. And then once I kind of embraced the, oh no, wait, anime is a different gear. I got to shift into this anime gear. Yeah. Once I did that, it kind of, kind of started to come together. Uh, (laughs) So my version is called the mildly mischievous adventures of Stuffy the Bunny. Okay, this is interesting. And so, just like yours, Mima is an ex-J-pop star, and uh, she's now kind of turned more into a, I mean, I guess content creator or artist, whichever you prefer. And um, Mm -hmm. she, you know, she used the J-pop famous idleness to put herself in a position where she was able to create she, you know, she's like the head superstar creator of this show. She writes it, she directs it, she voices the the main character or even two main characters on the show. And so the show is loosely based on her childhood, which is, you know, she kind of had a toddlers and Tierra type mom of a very mm. over overbearing mother slash manager. And so because of that, she was always on the move. She never had any real friends. And so she had this sort of security blanket stuffed animal called Stuffy the Bunny. And Stuffy the Bunny was her only friend. So it's kind of like Kelvin and Hobbes meets Roger Rabbit meets Pokemon. Because maybe Stuffy the Bunny has, you know, magic powers or something. And so she eventually decides... You know, I was a J-pop star for a while. Then I was in charge of this cool show for a while. Now I'm going to go and start a family. And I'm going to, you know, I I can't, you know, I can't make these movies or this show forever. So, you know, she's, she's going to go to the train station with her fiance or boyfriend or whatever. And she's going to leave the big city and kind of go settle off and, you know, you know, finally stay put in her life because she never stayed put. She was always on the move, right? But the network owns the character of Stuffy the Bunny. And so... (gasps) Fuck, those greedy networks! I know. So what the network does is they've developed... This is where it, like, boom! This could only be done in anime. The network develops... A genetically enhanced animal recreation of Stuffy the Bunny. And so what they do is they force Mima into a total recall type chair and they take out the portion of her mind that is Stuffy the Bunny and they put it into this crazy creature thing. And so the creature becomes like Roger Rabbity, where it's but like a, a a quote unquote real version of Roger Rabbit. So it's like the character becomes reality, and the character is now real. But the That's problem, nuts. Is, right? The problem is, Stuffy the Bunny is super mischievous. So I mean, I know in the is title, he hot? Called, what do you mean? Is he hot? I mean, is he her love interest? Oh, no. So the romance of this, as I actually had to look up the definition of romance because I wanted to make sure. <laughs> I wanted to make 
I wanted to make sure that romance wasn't, when I think of romance, I think of, you know, kind of more of a lover sexual component, but romance can just sort of mean, you know, infatuation or, you know, a, a connection, a, yes. an intimate connection. So, so I made no that argument. Yeah. No, Stuffy is not hot. Stuffy is sort of, Stuffy is kind of like Kelvin and Hobbes, right? So it's, he's kind of, he's like a stuffed animal. Um, you know, so he's very cartoony in that aspect. And I know the title of the movie is called The Mildly Mischievous Adventures of Stuffy the Bunny, but mildly is an understatement because Stuffy is bonkers. And I'm talking like, <laughs> <laughs> the mass level bonkers, just super explosive in his craziness and his mischievousness. And, you know, he's like a Loki type, you know, trickster character. Nice. Uh, and just he, like Roger Rabbit. And uh, so I've got a few little moments or things where um, we've got a ticking time clock because Mima has to get to her fiance at the train station at a certain time. So it's like a race to the train station, but all this stuff starts converging because she's a super megastar, right? Yeah. And so we've got like a TMZ. You can't just get on the train. No. And so she's got to go from the network headquarters to the train station. So there's a whole adventure. And so we've got like a TMZ uh, paparazzi type thing where she's like, being photographed and she's got to escape the paparazzi and in order to escape the paparazzi uh stuffy does like a red carpet fashion show sort of like a scooby-doo oh. you know when they like become barbers and they're cutting the hair of the monster um maybe there's like a fan club thing where she gets sort of tricked or accidentally stumbles into a fan club meeting and then the crowd goes nuts for Stuffy, the fact that Stuffy is now real. And so they're asking Stuffy, like, can you hit me on the head with a mallet? Can you, you know, explode me, give me a exploding cigar? And like the audience is loving it. And because it's an anime and it's silly and goofy, you can do that sort of Looney Tunesy like ultra violence, but it's, you know, everyone's fine and okay. Um, then maybe she's got these death threats, right? Because there's always death threat stuff. Always. And so uh, Stuffy the Bunny kind of turns into a very martial arts savvy Bruce Lee type character. Um, I know Bruce Lee is Chinese, not Japanese, but Spike Spiegel, who we've name dropped on the show before, is uh, he uses Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's style. So, you know, there's still a connection there. Uh, maybe the uh, maybe there's like other agents trying to get Mima to do stuff. And so Stuffy the bunny turns into like a lawyer or accountant and reads over the contract and is sort of like, Oh, this is, you know, we got to get rid of this. We got to get rid of this. We add this, we add this. And then he gets the, the, the agent to sign it. But what he doesn't realize the agent doesn't realize is most of the, the extra clauses that Stuffy put in was like, I get to, bang you over the head and put you in a rocket ship and send you off to the moon. Like, oopsies, probably should have read that contract a little more carefully. Always read the terms of service. And so then finally, just like network stuff, maybe there's, you know, a head network president who, you know, just a sort of main overall villain that kind of provides a chase and stuff. But finally, 
Um, oh, and also she's on the phone with her fiance the whole time. And slowly over the course of the movie, we get hints that the fiance is a big time jerk. And so, oh, yeah. And so, oh, also the fiance is a hair model, right? Because like J pop star, mega star, she's got to date a model. So, you know, like he's a famous hair model and his hair is is what he's known for. So glorious. Uh, when they get to the train station, they realize that they finally somehow reveal that the fiance is a jerk and Mima is brokenhearted and she's like, Stuffy, I can't go out into the world on my own. I need you. And Stuffy is like, there's no way I'm going to go settle in the countryside. That is not who I am. So there's a very inside Stuffy is an urban boy. Yeah. So there's a very inside out moment where the imaginary friend has to say goodbye. And so they part ways Aww. and, you know, it's a very touching moment. It's like a bittersweet moment. Uh, and then, you know, maybe like we start the credits, but then we cut, oh. you know, like it's a very early mid credit scene where Stuffy the bunny, like um, maybe, maybe the fiance is in the bathroom taking a leak and then Stuffy the bunny, like busts open the door and he's got a huge axe and you're like oh shit this is gonna turn dark is he gonna do some some chopping off of the old bitty bits but then it like cuts to uh he only chopped off the hair and the fiance's <laughs> like my hair and it's like you know stuffy the bunny's like ain't i a stinker and that <laughs> 10 real credits oh, so stuffy's still taking care of her even when they're not together Right. Yeah. You got to look out, you, you know, the, the, um, I don't know. I don't know if there's a Bellamy type phrase for this, like, uh, Adam Scott in leap year, uh, where it's like the perfect boyfriend is also really the perfect jerk. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they've always got to get their come. I'm a big fan of comeuppance. So I do love a good comeuppance. Um, yeah, I know. Like we were saying in the Leap Year episode, um, dying in a rom-com is getting pooped on. Like right. there's no violence on you. You can get pooped uh, or you can have your hair chopped off. Um, I feel like hair problems are also a way to get revenge on people in rom-coms. <laughs> Uh, instead of having to directly kill them. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very The Mask-ish, very Roger Rabbit-ish. Um, just a silly, goofy, fun, cartoony good time. I like it. I yeah. like it. Uh, so as we move into your name, which is Shira, I'm interested to know why you picked this movie. Why this movie? So I had heard about this movie when it came out and it was getting all sorts of acclaim and great reviews. And even though having watched the movie, I don't think this is a good entry point necessarily for someone who's never seen anime before. Like I might say to someone, to, to tell them to watch like the girl who leaped through time or something like that, where it's a little bit more cerebral. This was an anime. I mean, it had, you know, all the 
all the goofy, all the goofy anime stuff that that you would expect, including a goofy opening sequence with characters running in different directions, um, trying to fight destiny or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, so. but yeah, There's I just so I heard people. I heard so many good things about it, and that I had never seen it until this time. I think I totally get what you mean because this movie is very anime, but I also think that there's some people out there who just have an open mind enough where like my mom, my mom is not into summer action blockbusters, mm-hmm. at, you know, like that's not her thing, but the Marvel movies have this magic about them where she can watch a movie like Iron Man or, uh, or Captain America or Doctor Strange and really get into it. Her favorite Marvel movie, which is completely understandable, is Thor Ragnarok. Uh, because which it's is great. Taika Waititi, right? Yeah. And it's, he's amazing. It's, uh, it's so That movie is on a whole nother level. Uh, and so she really likes Thor. Thor was always her favorite character, which is like, you know, Thor finally kind of gets a good movie. He gets maybe one of the best Marvel movies. Um, so I think if my mom were to see this, she definitely would have that kind of anime whiplash, but the movie is so, I don't know the term that I'm looking for. There's a specific term, but like heartwarming. It's so, yeah, it's so sweet that I think like by the end of this movie, man, I, I can't help, but just verbally cheer on the characters as there's that final quote-unquote race to the airport scene uh, I'm, I'm watching the movie and i'm like oh yeah like yeah. i'm so surprised to hear you say that because you have complained about the rom well maybe you just hate amelie but you've yeah. complained about some of the romances we've watched where the characters don't really come together until the end of the film but that's exactly what happens in this movie. Well, yeah, Amelie is definitely uh, a movie that goes way... I like to, instead of saying I hate a movie, I like to say it went over my head because that makes fans of the movie kind of feel like, oh, I, you know, they don't get defensive. It's not like, oh, well, you hated this movie? It's like, oh, it, you just, it wasn't for you. I know exactly what you mean. My version of that is this didn't work for me. yeah. And so that movie definitely did not work for me. Uh, Penelope was maybe a few steps above Amelie, but that movie also didn't work for me. A little over my head. Um, it's It kind of had the same thing where even though the characters are together, they're not really together. And it's not until the end does the movie for me actually start. But these characters are spending time with each other because they're in each other's bodies And so even though they don't physically meet until the end, although there is that one scene on the train, you know, the three years earlier scene, Mm -hmm. but even though they don't physically meet till the end, they are so connected at that point that the movie, I like, this is a beautiful movie where the ending fits. This is the exception to the rule. Right. Um, So yeah. I think both of us met our exceptions in these two movies. Yeah, this movie's just so charming that it's I I could not imagine 
anyone hating this movie. I can imagine someone like my dad going, eh, but I can't imagine anyone actively hating this movie. It's delightful. That's another word to describe it. It's just a delight. It, and then it's beautiful. I mean, another thing that, I mean, animation renders so beautifully is the scenery of the main female character's town is just so beautiful. This, I, I would not have any trouble saying this is probably the most beautifully animated movie I've seen maybe like Miyazaki movies, you know, I'm sure someone out there is throwing their phone or however they're listening to this podcast. They're throwing it and stomping it, yelling at me going, no, you're wrong. But your name is a beautiful. Bellissima. So (laughs) Brett, tell us what happens in this movie. Well, uh, I'm going to have to skip over some stuff because like with Perfect Blue, this movie has a lot of things happening in a very condensed amount of time. The first act Uh, is kind of confusing. Yeah. So Mitsua is a teenage schoolgirl and she wakes up and she looks down at her chest and she starts fondling her breasts. And then there's the cute little gimmick of the sister catching her all the time. And then Mitsua goes to the mirror and undresses and looks at herself and then screams. And then we cut to the next day and Mitsua wakes up and eats breakfast and walks to school and participates in class. And everyone keeps mentioning how weird she was yesterday and how she seems to be a bit more of herself today. Uh, And over the course of uh, getting to know Mitsua and her father, the mayor, and the grandmother, and the traditions, and the mouth spit sake, we learn that Mitsua is kind of fed up with the small town life. And she kind of wants to go live in Tokyo. And I think it's kind of weird. This, we'll, I'm sure you'll have some stuff to say, but it's kind of weird that she specifically says, I want to be a young boy living in Tokyo. Um, but then we cut to Taki, a teenage schoolboy waking up in bed. And he cups himself down below and he screams or panics. And we realize it's Mitsua is in the body of a boy. So this is all a dream, right? Of course, she would think that. And one of the cool things is she's in the city. So she's getting everything she wanted. She's a boy. She's in the city. She's But she doesn't know where anything is. She shows up at school at noon. Oh, it's so great. So she, just like Mitsua, we get the, the implication that Mitsua was not acting like herself. We actually see Mitsua as Taki stumbling her way through school using the wrong gender pronouns <laughs> being weird in her social activities working at the restaurant and just being so overwhelmed although i think she does a really good job of like raising uh, rising to the challenge like she yes. really jumps into being a waiter she's uh, so and, cute as a boy ah uh, i think so too and so she you know the restaurant has miss okudera as her boss and there's a little stuff that happens there but uh, you know What I'm saying is she eventually helps Miss Okudera stitch a little slit in her skirt and they walk home together. And it's very cute because she's Taki and a boy, but she's being being very feminine and kind of flirty, but not flirty. And it's it's just a really interesting dynamic. 
then the next morning, Taki wakes up and same kind of thing as before. Everyone keeps mentioning how weird he was yesterday. And then 30 minutes into the movie, we get this amazing montage musical break number of Mitsuha and Taki figuring out that they seemingly randomly switch bodies and we have this great set of scenes where they work out a set of rules and they communicate via phones and diaries and they're it's getting so into they're, they're messing up each other's lives taki as mitsua keeps acting out you know she's got to be perfect though because she's representing the town and mitsua as taki keeps spending too much money and flirting with miss okudera she likes those going- tokyo desserts those gorgeous oh, so Tokyo desserts. Uh, and she even goes so far as to set up a date with Miss Okudera. And so, of course, Taki wakes up on date day and scrambles to make the date. And even Mitsu uh, is like, here's some advice. Do this, do that. Here's some links. And it's it's so adorable. Uh, and so he obviously likes Miss Okudera because that's kind of like the backstory is he's got a little crush on her, but he's a very nervous, shy boy. And he's also a bit preoccupied thinking about Mitsua. So the next morning he tries to call Mitsua, but she doesn't answer. And then the movie freaking goes like a huge left turn. Taki becomes obsessed with finding her to the point of going on a tour of the country with Miss Okudera and one of his friends, surprising him by tagging along. They scour the countryside looking for Mitsua in the small village that Taki has drawn from memory. Everyone in this movie is a great artist. Uh, And just as Taki is about to give up hope, he's told that the village is Itomori and that the town was destroyed three years ago by a meteorite that broke apart and crashed into the village. Mitsua is dead. So Taki races to the site of the ancient shrine where the meteorite 1,020 years ago uh, crashed and the new meteorite crashed three years ago. And he goes to the ancient site and he takes a sip of the spit sake and because of that time and space are all swooshed together and swirling and crazy that sequence only in animation only in anime for sure uh and so he's able to transcend time and space and warn mitsua of her impending danger and mitsua along with her two friends Uh, who have a a great little side character dynamic. Uh, They destroy the power station to cut off the power and distract the town, and they hijack the emergency, or to get the town's attention. They hijack the emergency alarm system at the school to broadcast an announcement that all the villagers must evacuate to the school, which is the safe zone, and the villagers do not do a good job of following that emergency broadcast. And so while doing this, Mitsua races to the original meteorite site from, you know, 1,200 years ago. And during Twilight, which is a great callback to a moment they set up earlier. It's so beautiful. her, Her and Taki are able to have perhaps one of the most adorablest meet cutes of all time. It's such a great moment. Uh, they promise not to forget each other's names and Taki writes his name on her hand and she, before she can write her name on his hand, twilight ends and she disappears. So then uh, while she's, um, so then she finds it 
she's finding it pretty impossible to save the town for reasons. And so Mitsu is scrambling desperately to warn the villagers. And along the way, she forgets who Taki is. And then she trips and she falls and she opens her palm. And this is the moment where she's going to remember Taki's name. And written on her palm is, I love you. Oh, oh. He used all the time he had to tell her that he loves her. Oh. I have no shame in showing uh, this movie plays with gender norms and stuff. I have no shame or embarrassment in showing my feminine side and talking about cute, adorable movies like this. This movie, uh, this movie gets a tear from me, man. This is such a great movie. What a beautiful moment. I love you. It's so sappy. It's so cheesy, but the movie freaking earns it. Uh, So then we cut to five years later Taki seems to have forgotten Mitsuha as well, but he feels deep down in his core that he's missing something. And then we learn that the evacuation three years ago at Itamori was mostly a success. So Taki and Mitsuha are both living in Tokyo. They are on the trains. They see each other on separate trains. They race. They get off at the next stop. They race to find each other. And then, boom, there it is. Uh, She's at the top of the staircase. He's at the bottom of the staircase. But they're both so awkward, and they're both so shy, and they both don't remember each other, but they have a feeling about each other. Will the other person respond in the same way? What's going to happen? They walk past each other. They chicken out. But then Taki turns. He calls out to her, and she calls out to him, and they both ask each other for your name. Boom. Credits. Ah. Man, what a movie. Ah, yes. Oh, my God. It, it, it certainly shed a little moisture at I Love You written on her hand. Full on crying by the time we get to the very end of the movie. Uh, so many emotions. I was so... I I was a mess watching the end of this movie because... I just wanted everything to turn out okay, but to make my this will make me sound like a terrible person. I was also rooting for the comet to still come down on the city. I wrote down, I'm going to be pissed as hell if in this version the comet doesn't hit and she warns them for nothing. And they didn't pull any punches. It still happened. Um, but they were There's able to change. Count, but it's yeah, not they changed fate, though. Oh, my God. And then just the fact that they forgot each other, the way yeah, that the, the body really, switching works. That part is a little unexplained. It's a little silly. But at the same time, body switching, time travel, and all, like, at that point, if you're thinking, why are they forgetting each other's names, then then obviously the movie didn't work for you. No, but the the thing that makes the the them forgetting about it so magical is it allows somebody to bridge that gap. If you're willing to suspend disbelief, it allows you to say, what if this could happen to anyone? There are two people in the movie that recognize that Mitsuha is not herself, when Taki is her, her grandmother, and then Mitsuha's father. And I think that it's implied that both her father and her grandmother 
have had these experiences before. Like maybe this is how her father fell in love with her mother, but they, you know, because of the rules of the body switching, they can't remember how they really came to know each other. It, they just right. saw a face and it looked familiar to them. But it, it leaves this open possibility, like what if you could dream of another person's life? What if you have lived another person's life, not just a life in the past, like uh, reincarnation, but you've lived in other people's lives now, but it's so fantastical and dreamlike that you could never accept that as reality. I mean, for me, I hardly ever remember my dreams, but when I do, sometimes I dream about places, neighborhoods, places that I only know from dreams. Does that mean I'm living someone else's life or it's just a dream? You know, you don't know, but it's it's kind of magical and fun to contemplate what if. Yeah, this uh, I know that we're both big fans of the fantastical kind of movie. And this movie does just a great job of setting its rules. I mean, it kind of throws you off at the beginning, but that's mm -hmm. a way to put you in the character's shoes. The characters don't know what's going on. But then the moment the characters figure it out, like, bam, that musical break montage scene is so much fun. It's just... It's I mean, a it lot just, of fun. Ah. Uh, so great. Uh, I am really curious to get into some of the, the gender swapping gender stuff. And actually, as I was saying, I'm sure you have more to say. As I was imagining putting myself in your brain, uh, which is a mess, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, um, have you been watching thinking, Drag Race too? Are you trying to read <laughs> me right now? <laughs> Um, I was thinking like, you know, her responsibilities as a as a young woman and the ceremony and stuff like that. Uh, I, I actually do now understand probably why she would want to be a boy, because as a girl, she's got these responsibilities on her. But as a boy, you know, Taki's life is a little bit more carefree and her life has a lot of pressure riding on it. Right. Like one of the things Okudera says about how Taki was when when she was being Taki was that he seemed really sweet and that he was trying really hard. Mitsuha is in this position where she has to try so hard to represent the temple, to represent the town, to just make a space for herself. And so, yeah, this idea that it she could be somewhere else, someone else who doesn't have those responsibilities is so enticing. And then even for Taki too, he's kind of this, you know, superficial city boy. And the experience, even though he you know, eventually it fades from his memory, it affects the entire direction of his life because he does these drawings of Itamori. It causes him to become an architect. Such a rom-com job, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, only, <laughs> only people in rom-coms are architects. Uh, and then he, in all his job interviews, he explains the sort of the incident at Itomori being one of the driving factors for why he wants to build his buildings and, you know, have something that lasts forever. So it, 
it turns him into a serious person with, you know, a lot more depth than he had before. God, I just, I love the scene between them at twilight when they can finally see each other. Um, and I, the, the whole device of them actually being three years apart, it's been, I, I don't know if this movie precedes your name. Actually, I know it does, but there's a movie with um friend of the podcast, Sandra Bullock, uh, and Keanu Reeves called The Lake House, where yeah. they share a magical mailbox where they can trade letters with each other. But it turns out that I think it's Sandra Bullock is in the past and very much like your name, Keanu Reeves has to stop her um, from getting into this horrible accident uh, because that's the reason they didn't meet um, in the future or something like that. Or maybe he stops it. I, I don't know. But yeah, this this whole device of people reaching each other across time is it's it's I, I love that they they managed to get two things in there. They got body swap, which is also a fun trope of the genre. And you got love across time. <sighs> yeah. I mean, uh, I went into this movie completely cold because like you, I had just heard nothing but praise for the movie. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we probably should have prefaced, I think both movies are great to go in cold, but yeah, going in cold, this movie, like I said, you never get to uh, get your footing. It's, it's just constantly surprising you, but it's not in a way that's, you know, again, like Perfect Blue, it's not in a gotcha way. It's every twist and turn in this movie just amps up the stakes, amps up the relationships, amps up, amps up everything about the movie. And it all feels natural. This movie did play with my emotions, though. Like, I, I, was, I was so afraid that I was going to get got uh, and that they were going to pull the bummer ending on me. And I was just, like I said, in tatters and shambles, just trying to make it to the end of this movie, hoping for that happy ending. Um, and then the payoff was so sweet. Yeah. You, you really need a happy ending sometimes. Like, it's... I really appreciated the ending to this movie. Yes. Yes. I, I would have been so upset if they just left it ambiguous whether or not they were going to meet each other again. It would have frustrated me so much. I yeah. I mean, I I it's not that I hate ambiguity, but I feel like people use ambiguity as a shorthand for intellectual or smart or artistic. For example, Lost in Translation is a romance that a lot of people love. But to me, it's just so fucking pedantic to make it this whole ambiguous thing. Like, what did he really say to her at the end? I don't know. Like, no, I don't need that kind of ambiguity in my life. I just, I want to know. What fucking happened to them? Yeah. there. I mean, this isn't rom-commy or even romancy, but there are exceptions to the rule. I might have mentioned it on the podcast before, but Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, that, that movie ending yeah. is ambiguous as 
all get out, but that it does a great job of putting you in the character's mindset. So, you know, the uneasiness of not knowing what's going on. You see, that's is... different though, because that M Marcy Murdley, that movie was selling ambiguity from the get go. Like I, they might yeah, as well, true. like that movie could have been wearing a sign. You're not going to get any answers here. We're going right. to show you a bunch of shit. You're going to question a lot of it. And by the end of it, you'll have an, you'll have lived in this character's experience, but fuck off if you want us to answer any questions. Like, I think that if a movie gives me that at the beginning, like I'll say another movie like that is Picnic at Hanging Rock, where there's a mystery, but there's no pressure to find the answer to the mystery. And the movie, again, is saying, yeah, fuck off if you want to know the answer to this mystery. That's not even the point. Um, so I think that if if a movie can make that really clear from the beginning without being, you know, overly um, slap you over the head with it, and then I, I can go with ambiguity. But a movie like Your Name, if you left me hanging, I'm throwing a table. It's very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it de like that definitely would have been an ending that just ruined the whole movie. Yeah. So, is there anyone in this movie worth killing? I I'm struggling to think of anyone I really want to die. Yeah, I think I totally like him from a story and character perspective, but the dad, the oh, mayor dad. Yeah, at the end when he's like, let's not evacuate the town. And he's like actively going against his daughter. And it's like, no, listen to your daughter. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I I would kill him. And I also just, just because you got to know that in the version where everyone lived, um, he totally took credit for the evacuation. Oh, like right. he's he's gonna spin it in whatever way he needs to to make him look good as the mayor. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't get that scene because I totally could see it. We need a comeuppance, <laughs> justice for Itamori. So I'm curious, how did you turn? How did it go turning your name? into a horror movie uh i had a pretty good time with this i actually really like me too i really like my version it's i would say that sometimes we or i specifically will cross genres and go more into the actiony bit of things instead of the straight up horror bit of things so this is you know if you want to get technical maybe a bit more of an actiony movie but I have, uh, it's called Your Grave. Oh, I love it. Nice. Um, Mitsua is an only child and she has a single abusive father. And so she's got a really shitty home life. She is expelled from school for reasons. It could be like a prank happened and she got blamed for it. Or maybe there was a fight and you know, she got blamed for it. So she gets expelled from school and she is fired from her job because much like in your name, there's kind of an asshole customer. And so the manager, instead of taking care of things, just goes, get out of here. You're fired. So 
Mitua runs away from home and she basically becomes homeless and she's just got a really bad life. She's struggling. She's trying to make it on her own, but she doesn't really know what to do or where to go. She has no source of. And so uh, there's one time there's like a loading dock. She's walking by a loading dock. And, oh, if you go into it, it's raining out, of course. It's like, oh, the loading dock is safe and warm and she can hide in there. So as these people are unloading this truck into this loading dock, she manages to sneak inside. And it's actually a museum. And she sneaks inside the museum and there's some guards. So there's a little bit of stealth action going on. She's got to hide. And one of the places she hides is a terracotta sarcophagus. So I know terracotta is <gasps> Chinese. And Cursed I know, but mummies! Yeah, so I know terracotta is Chinese, but sarcophagus is Egyptian, so meh. Um, and in the sarcophagus, you know, she's hiding out, and she's going to escape once the guards go by, but she's tired, and she's wet from the rain, and mm. she's in this closed, dark, safe hiding spot, and so she falls asleep. And then she wakes up in the ancient past as a samurai. Oh, that's so anime. Oh, so anime. So she's a samurai for Lord Tokugawa. Uh, and she uh, sets off with Taki, her partner. And through the conversation, I, I know that I mentioned this in the Mistaken Identity episode, but I love characters who have to bluff their way into situations. Uh, in of course. El Ora, he's got to bluff his way into this heist uh, in, in Eyes Wide Shut. He's got to bluff his way into this orgy. crazy sex cult orgy. And so, so of course, things, things automatically, the stakes get a little bit high because Taki starts talking to him about spies and infiltration. And there's this sense that, of course, Mitsua, as the samurai, should know what he's talking about. So she's kind of got to pick up information really quick and talk in vague terms as if she knows what she's talking about and she's got to kind of blend in. But then the group is the two partners are ambushed by bandits and Mitsua is mortally wounded. And I don't know if you know this about samurai, but samurai, much like the Greeks, had a very open mind when it came to relationships. And I uh, did know and I support it. Yeah, so samurai saw saw relationships between men as something to be treasured. And I think they saw relationships with women as more of a, we got to make a baby. I mean, there's nothing uh, straighter than fucking another dude. Right. And so Mitsua, as the older samurai is mortally wounded, Taki, the partner, is all like, I love you. I need you. They share a kiss. And they embrace. They share a kiss. And, of course, it's like the dying breath kiss. And then... Boom, Mitua wakes up in the coffin and much like an anime type thing. Well, I'll describe it later. So she sneaks out. She's in the shitty, cold, rainy, wet street life, scrounging for food, safety, warmth, all that stuff. And then she sees an ad for the museum and the upcoming, coming soon, terracotta sarcophagus samurai burial exhibit. So she's like, say what? You know, 
So she sees that. So like the world and street and everything is dark and rainy, but the ad is well lit. Maybe it's at like a bus stop or in a store. So the ad is well lit and she flashes back to the sunny countryside of being a samurai. And so like, you know, show don't tell. She remembers what it's like going back. So of course she wants to go back. So she goes back to the museum and she sleeps in another coffin. She can't sleep in the same one because that person's now dead. And I'm thinking like, you know, those sort of kabuki mask type Japanese mask things. Um, maybe the sarcophagi have a mask on it that's smiling, but then once, you know, the character dies, it's frowning. So we have a sort of like visual indication that this is a one-way ticket or not a one-way ticket, but a one-time deal. So yeah. she's starts going back and forth between samurai and current times and in the samurai times she has to again bluff her way into this infiltration spy network of lord tokugawa and in the modern times, she has to study samurai rituals because of course samurai are very strict in their rituals and so if you are a samurai and you're not doing the rituals right you're going to get spotted immediately the bushido code Right. And so she's got to also unlock the past conspiracies of this spy network. And she's got to do research at the library in terms of like, who's who and what spy is really on what side. And it's very complicated. Um, and so she goes back and forth between the time periods. And so I have, there are seven coffins. So I have five deaths real quick that I'm just going to blast through. The very first death after the, of course, the bandit death is she has to commit seppuku right because she doesn't know the she doesn't know the samurai rituals she mm, she messy yeah she betrays the bushido code so the samurai are like uh you gonna kill yourself for honor and she's like i'm not gonna kill myself so you know in the bushido or in the seppuku stuff you have to like stab yourself and cut a hole in your stomach and there's a samurai behind you who's ready your to buddy. chop your head off right and so she can't do it. So they're like, all right, I guess you're not going to bring honor to your family. And they behead the guy. And so she wakes up, does more investigating and stuff. Um, one of the ones is I know murder hornets are big in the news right now. But ja I, I, could, I don't want to go on a tangent, but look up Japanese hornets versus uh, honeybees and watch how 30 honeybees can take out like or 30 hornets can take out 30,000 honeybees like that. And then watch the honeybees' way of self-defense in terms of how they counteract the the hornets. Oh, just Google Google hornets versus honeybees, and it's freaking insane. Um, hornets versus bees. Got it. Right. And so, uh, so maybe like a, maybe the character gets stung with hornets, and it's really gruesome and violent. And uh, the third death is maybe she saves a child but the child is like a peasant child so the other samurai that she's with are like why are you risking your life for this peasant child and she, you know she's got to be like you know honor and stuff and whatnot the third death is through ninja of course she's got to fight a bunch of ninja and the ninja are fucking badass so of course she puts up a good fight but they destroy her and then the final or the fifth one or the sixth one is Lord Tokugawa. Lord to she fights off versus Lord Tokugawa. Lord, it's a very intense battle, but Lord Tokugawa has supernatural powers, like which is a Japanese war thing. 
so then the final coffin is coffin number seven. She sleeps in the coffin. The and, seventh samurai? Right. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think <laughs> about that. But yes, I meant to do that. Um, the whole time she's got this relationship going on with Taki. And then Have she wakes dudes? up with different dudes, right? But it's not mm. all sexual relationships. It's just she, you know, they're getting to know each other through her being different characters and interacting okay, with each other. Okay. Times. So, so she grows to, to love Taki, but the whole gimmick is she's like Edge of Tomorrow. She can die and it doesn't matter to her, right? No consequences, really. But, but her vessels are dying. But in the seventh coffin, she wakes up as Taki. What? So it's like, she can't oh, die. fuck. She can't. But wait, but then she never gets to see Taki again because she is him. Well, is Taki okay, gonna... gone forever? I'm so glad that you're invested because this is going to be a heck of an ending. Much like 13 Assassins or Blade of the Immortal, we're going to have a mega bloody ultimate fight scene where it's Taki versus a hundred samurai. And maybe Taki like uses his Bushido Zen Buddhist time travel to like fuse with Mitsuha and they like become the ultimate, they like go super saiyan, you know, and they like kill all the 100 samurai. They kill Lord Tokugawa and then the final death is if Mitsuha stays as Taki, she's never going to go back to her time period. And the only way to go back to her own time period is through Seppuku, right? She's got to kill herself. And, and Taki kill Taki. Says, Taki says, I'm going to sacrifice myself for your honor. And then, you know, she sac- there's like a cool sacrifice scene and it's very like bittersweet. And you're no. like, no. Taki! And then we cut to modern day. The little epilogue is um, she visits the grave of Taki and there's like perhaps a little saying on it, you know, that's like a callback to whatever that we set up before. But yeah, the whole movie is just time traveling, bloody samurai spies. I like it. It's like Inuyasha, but without the dog demons. Right. Well, I, I thought about throwing demon stuff in there because I'm going to mention a movie during our Love Bites that's super ninja demony, and I'm sure you know what it is. But um, yeah, so I, I, I toyed with the idea of demons, but I was like, eh, I've already got a lot going on. You know? Yeah. No. I. I. Yeah. I. I love it, and it is very much an anime premise. Right. Falling through a well or a coffin, dying, being re- reincarnated in another world. It's just a staple of the medium. Yeah. I uh, This one was much easier for me because once I was like, time travel samurai, I am all for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so, that, that shit writes itself. Right. Uh, so yeah, I'm super curious. I actually, it writes itself. I feel like Taki used his Zen Buddhist time travel, uh, Nirvana to channel the story for me, but yeah, I can't wait to hear yours. So it's interesting that you mentioned that for you, you kind of fall back on action. I feel like for me, I fall back on noir, mystery, thriller, like 
that's a lane where I just feel so comfortable that and then competitive weirdos. I fucking love competitive killer weirdos and I have to just resist it every time. I I just want to turn every horror I write into a thing about competitive weirdos who are both killers. Uh, and I resisted that urge once again, <laughs> um, but I, I, I steered into the thriller territory. So this one is called your crimes also yeah. didn't didn't do anything original with the title so mitsuha mia miyamizu is a girl living in the country and she wakes up one morning feeling like she's dreamed about being another person and she's not in her pajamas like she expects but yesterday's clothes she looks at her palm and written there in ink is a message who do you want to kill uh, and meanwhile, Taki Tachibana, a boy who lives in Tokyo, he wakes up feeling similarly, but he doesn't have a note. Um, Taki leaves for school quickly, so he doesn't have to interact with his mother and his stepfather. Taki hates his stepfather and still grieves his father, who was murdered mysteriously three years ago. And so Taki just has a total Hamlet complex you know, he just, he's all, woe is me, I hate my stepdad, you know, that kind of thing. So pretty soon, Taki figures out what's happening between him and Mitsuha, the body switching, before she does. And he decides that he is going to use Mitsuha to kill his stepfather without it getting linked back to him. A little bit of a perfect strangers, um, or no, not perfect strangers, sorry, strangers on a train. Kind of like a strangers on the train thing. Uh, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. <laughs> so Mitsuha eventually figures out what Taki is trying to do. And while he's planning for the murder, she is trying to figure out who he is so she can stop him from going through with it using her body. Um, because Mitsuha is a good girl. She doesn't want to kill anyone. Uh, and she, um, the, the problem with it is that with the forgetting after the body switching, it's really hard to remember details. She tries to send herself an email with the information, but then she gets a bounce back because the email's invalid. And then she notices the date and gasps, but suddenly she's back in her own body. Um, meets a, little bit of a, a little bit of memento going on. Short yeah. Memory yeah. So it, so she she sees the date when she's in Taki's body <gasps> realization back in her own body. Uh, she sees that Taki has prepared his murder kit. Uh, and so she knows that it's going to be soon. This is going to be the night. So she realizes that at this point, it's going to be hard to top him to stop him. Um but she saw the truth when she was in his body, which is that he's three years into the future. And she knows that if Taki goes through with his plan, he's going to make a really big mistake. See, this is not a twist because I want to ramp up the tension for what we both know is about to come. And if you don't know what's coming, you haven't been listening. Um, so she knows he's going to make a mistake. So she writes him a note and leaves it on the side of the bed uh, but when she goes to sleep, the note falls between the nightstand and the bed. So doesn't get to see. Um, oh. 
So that that one chance to stop fate dashed, uh, further amping up this tension. And then Taki wakes up in Mitsuha's body. He goes to Tokyo to proceed with his plan. And in the middle of the night, he gets to his own house. He climbs through the master bedroom window without a second thought. You know, if you're going to kill someone, you got to act fast. You can't hesitate. He stabs the sleeping form on the ground and rolls it over to reveal his father. And it's then that Taki realizes that all along, he was the one who murdered his own dad. Uh, and Mitsuha was on a different timeline from him this entire time. And he, because he never got the note that she left him, swears revenge and writes, oh. you know, I'm going to kill you on Mitsuha's body. Yeah, for the note falling, uh, a little a little note is you could have an alarm clock with like a girly pop song and Taki hates the song, right? It's kind of like Groundhog's Day. Every time he mm -hmm. wakes up, he's like, oh, that song again. And maybe on that and fateful I'm day where the pill falls, he like slams his fist on the alarm clock. And because he slams his fist on the alarm clock, the note he falls. makes the note fall. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I was thinking like I, I thought of something innocuous like the wind blows or it just falls. Right. But I like the idea of him accidentally pushing the note aside and missing his chance to prevent destiny, the thing right. he wanted to prevent more than anything. Um, but uh, so Mitsuha wakes up with the whole "I'm gonna kill you" message. Again, because of the nature of the body switch, she and Taki uh, forget. They forget everything. So now we fast forward to them as adults, and they pass each other on public transit, uh, and they recognize each other. They get off the subway at the same time, and they come face to face in an alley. And at first, it looks like they're going to walk by each other, and then suddenly they start fighting. Uh, and there's a scuffle. Taki's obviously stronger than Mitsuha. But it turns out that Mitsuha has a knife. Maybe she has the same knife. Uh, and she stabs Taki fatally. And then she asks him why he attacked her. And he asks her the same question. But after a while, he says, I remember your crimes. And then Mitsuha remembers too. And she says, your crime, Taki, your oh. crimes. And then she stabs him one last time to end his life. The end. Oh, fuck yeah. Credits. Boom. I like how you how you got to, to end the movie like your name, which is with the one of the ultimate, just silliest, most crowd-pleasing things in any movie, which is the name of the movie being said in the movie. Chef's Kiss, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate tickle of the cinematic soul. Your name, your crimes. <laughs> um, yeah, I wow. I think we, I know we've had some good movies before, but we're going to have to seriously start considering putting the podcast off to make some of these real scripts <laughs> well, we'd have to, to a few of them. we'd have to make them different enough but hey if 50 shades of gray 
can go on to make millions of dollars and have originated from a Twilight fanfic, anything is possible. Yeah, I don't think these movies are are close enough to, I think, you know, I think we could get away with it. Mm, well, that's definitely something to consider. I, I like to know, you know, if we build an audience, if more of you listen to us, what they think, which, which ones they think are the best ones, we can do our very own Tusk and have it turn out way better than Tusk. I like Tusk, but also, oof, that movie is a, that movie is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I really... want to, I want Tusk, Tusk walked so we could run. Right. That's good. That's a good way of putting it. Um, speaking of the feedbacks, we are necromancer.podcast at gmail.com or just necromancer podcast. Just necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. I, I think it would be cool if down the line we have a QA um, yeah. and answer questions, get feedback. Um, yeah, I, I, there are lots of ways to engage with us. We're also on the Instagrams as the Necromancer Podcast. We've got uh, that Twitter, that sweet, sweet Twitter at Necromancer. Tweet, tweet. And on Facebook, where we are just Necromancer Podcast. We're Necromancer the Podcast. Nobody else is doing what we're doing. I I hope that you can find where we are. Uh, yeah. Hit us up. Do it. So, shall we end on our lovey bites? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't mind going first if... Yeah, give it to me. You you teased it earlier. I want to I want to hear it. Yeah, so one of the things that this podcast has done is definitely reinvigorate the the sort of love for movies that I have, right? Kind of went through a funk where like I would watch movies that were new releases or even movies that I knew that I liked that were old dependables, old reliables, uh old faithfuls and it was just like I was in that funk, but now I've got that mojo back again. I'm feeling pretty good about movies. And so one of the things that I really liked was someone that I worked with at Blockbuster once told me every movie has at least one good thing. So I kind of took that and, you know, there's some podcasts that I listen to that are very positive friendly, you know, like we just like liking things and very positive and so I wanted to do that with movies. I wanted to make a, a review site, uh, which I ended up using Letterboxd. And so I have a Letterboxd account, which is like the Facebook for movies, letterboxd.com slash one good thing. And for all the movies that I see, I just write one good thing. doesn't matter. I try not to say a single bad thing about the movies. So if I were doing a movie like Amelie, even though I talked, sort of negatively about it on the podcast in my review i would just be like mm, a short little one good thing like hey this one good thing was good but if i really like a movie like the movie that i just watched recently ninja scroll i will write a way more in-depth look at the movie and how the one good thing of the movie sort of reflects the entire movie as a whole 
So the the uh, the one good thing that I wrote for Ninja Scroll was very surprising to me because the more I started looking into it and analyzing the movie, the more I realized that when I watched this movie at a younger age, I was like, oh yeah, ultraviolet. That's all. This is style over substance, pure style over substance. This movie's great, right up my alley. But it's been, I don't know, 15, 20 years since I've seen it. And watching it now, as I got into the movie, it's only an hour and a half. As I got deeper into the movie, I realized that this movie actually uses style as substance. And this movie has a lot going on, you know, that's very Eastern, very Japanese in its storytelling. But it's very cinematic, very flashy, very violent. Uh, got some demon on human rapey stuff going on. So, you know, if that's I not mean, your this thing. is a staple of this particular um, animator. But I, I also feel like this is a good gateway anime because it has a very unique animation style that is peculiar to this or, or specific to this creator. And it's not super cartoony, big eyes kind of what you expect is the anime stereotype. So if that's not your thing, then you could still consider Ninja Scroll. Uh, I like the same creator as Ninja Scroll did a movie called Wicked City. It's pretty dope too. All right, I'm gonna add that one right to the list. Uh, but yeah, Ninja Scroll just- oh, Sorry, Demon City Shinjuku, that's what I meant to say. Oh, oh or no, is it? Yeah, isn't that the same guy? I don't know. I, I watched Demon City Shinjuku just kind of on a whim recently. And uh, I, if now that you're saying it, it you know, I can. Make I feel that like it's connection. been called Wicked City and other translations, but I, I conflated the two. If they're two separate yeah. movies, then rise up. Um, Demon City Shinjuku is a little more weird and esoteric, and it's a, it's a little wonkier, but. It's, I mean, if you're into it, it's pretty cool, but ugh, Ninja Scroll, oof. That movie is an adventure. Nice. So I'm curious now what you have for us. Oh, it was so hard to decide. I swore to myself that <laughs> I would only pick one damn thing to recommend and I struggled a lot because when it comes to romance animes or shoujo or jose, the animes that are targeted towards girls and women, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of opinions, which ones I think are good, which ones I think are good within specific subgenres, like reverse harems, which is a thing in animes for girls, um, sure. but not actual, like they do. That's beside the point. But I decided if people want that list from me, you can ask for it through all of the channels I just listed. If if the day comes when the people are like, we need to know what are Shira's favorite romance animes, uh, I will wait for that day. Uh, and then in the meantime, I'm just gonna give it to you. My favorite anime of all time. Uh, it is a series called From the New World. Uh, that's the English translation of the title. And it comes from uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony. 
Uh, and a motif in the show is the slow movement from the New World Symphony. It's very beautiful. But this Sounds show has... Yeah, no. So they've got... they. They they te- they check my box for for employing classical music. Um, they check my box when it comes to having multiple romantic plots. Uh, it checks my box in terms of being speculative fiction. So the plot of From the New World is in the future. Everybody has telekinetic powers, kind of like Carrie. But a cataclysmic event reversed technology in such a way that these communities are living in these semi-rural villages, but everybody has powers, and then they have certain laws and regulations, guidelines that keeps their culture the same. And then all of the agriculture is outsourced to these genetically modified rat creatures. So it's a little bit sci-fi um, and, uh, kind of, it may, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, where, you know, technology is, is backwards, but where you are in time is questionable. Uh, yeah. and then you yeah, follow. Amy is never satisfied with just throwing one wacky thing out there. They always got to throw like, eight oh, at least, things. at least eight wacky things. But here's the thing I like about this series. It's done. It's complete. It, there is an ending. I think one of the frustrating things about liking anime is when you like a series that lasts forever uh, and you have to contend with the fact that it's not over. For example, one of the series that I really like, Yona of the Dawn, they stopped making the anime and the manga is still going as far as I know. And it's been years like it, it's taking them years, like upwards of a decade to reserve some storylines. And for fans of Berserk, you can forget that story ever being resolved. So there's a lot of shit out there that doesn't have an ending. Uh, from the New World, that story is complete. Um, the other thing I like about it is it tracks these characters, these telekinetic kids from their adolescence all the way into their adulthood. So you get to see the sort of the heroine of the show really come into her own and change the person. And then here's the kicker that I think makes this for me the best anime series I've ever watched. The villain, the ultimate villain in this show I, I mean, animes have a lot of great villains, but the villain in this TV series is the type of villain where you understand why they need to fail and why the good guys need to win, but you also understand exactly why the villain is doing what they're doing and why they think it's the right thing to do. Like their motivation is so clear and you feel it, it it's it's both you know rewarding and tragic because you you understand exactly why the characters are making the choices they make and then the villain in this show i think is one of the greatest villains in any show i've ever seen all right i'm gonna have to check that how many episodes is it is it like i think it's like 25 or something like it's 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 a pretty manageable amount too it's not like hundreds of of episodes A lot of great series that are just, you know, like you said, some anime go on forever, but some of them are like, nope, 20, 25, we're done. Right. And I I appreciate that. So I think that's why 
for years now from the New York world has definitely been my number one. All right. Very nice. Nice indeed. All right. Well, I think we just made it. We squeaked by under two hours. So until next time. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.